the pandemic did a couple of things. One, it exposed in clear, broad daylight the inequities that existed in our nation between people who could afford to stay home, could afford to take care of their children, who had internet, who had choices about how to live out a pandemic, and the part of the nation that didn't, that had to go to work. And those of us who were able, we were captive to our televisions, captives to our social media devices. Because we were stuck inside, the pandemic made us focus. And so we couldn't escape from all of these things that were surfacing. We couldn't escape from COVID. We couldn't escape from the inequities. We couldn't escape from George Floyd. We couldn't escape from Donald Trump. It was in our face in a way that made us say, okay, I got to do something. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and here we are at episode number 93 of the Sidcast with my guest, Leah Dowtry, Bishop Leah Dowtry, nationally recognized organizer, activist, political strategist, author, and faith leader. She serves as the presiding prelate of the House of the Lord Churches, and she's the principal of On These Things LLC, which is a strategic planning and project management firm. And she's been a central player in the Democratic Party for years. She was the co-convener of Power Rising, which brings together black women and girls to leverage their power for the benefit of their communities. She was the CEO of both the 2008 and the 2016 Democratic National Conventions, and making her actually the only person in Democratic Party history to hold that position twice. And she really works at and lives at the intersection of faith and politics, not only being heavily involved in the Democratic Party, but being a religious leader that's had a big impact in the Black community, but also throughout the country. She's been named by Religion News Service as one of the dozen most effective Democrats in the nation on faith and values politics. She's the co-author of the NAACP Image Award, winning four colored girls who have considered politics. That was published in 2018. She's also a part of a long line of community organizers and activists, and even a fifth consecutive generation of clergy in the Dowtry family. And she's a graduate of Dartmouth College, of the Wesley Theological Seminary, and a native of Brooklyn, New York, and just lots and lots of interesting things that she has done, continues to do. But maybe the thing that really got me energized to ask her to be on the Sidcast, and I feel fortunate that she did say yes, is that she just has this, I don't know if it's emotional intelligence, I think it's deeper than that. She has this sensibility about her, about the world, and about religion, yes, and about politics, And, you know, you talk about the two things you're not supposed to talk about at a dinner party, religion and politics. That's all we talk about today. So I sometimes use the analogy that, you know, this in a sitcast is like being at a great dinner party where you kind of have this great conversation with someone. Well, this is a dinner party where we are going to talk about politics a lot. We are going to talk about religion a lot. We are going to talk about society and intersectional challenges and discrimination as well. And Leah Dowtry has been in the front lines of all of those efforts and all of that energy for a long, long time. So three things to share about today's episode. 
Number one, I wanted to know what it was like to run the Democratic National Convention. What is that like? And if you ever wondered what it's like to run this kind of giant show with so many people, with so much on the line, you know, any mistake that happens in the production of the convention, that's going to get in the news. And that's going to take away from the messaging and the energy that you want when your nominee actually gets officially recognized as a nominee. This is true both for Republicans and Democrats, but it was true for Leah Dowtry in managing the Democratic National Convention. And she was the CEO because, in fact, it was a, it's the right term, it was a job where you need a true leadership. And she takes us behind the scenes to see what actually happens and what actually happened. And by the way, as a little bonus, she knows Kamala Harris pretty well is actually good friends with her and shares a little bit about Kamala Harris, our vice president today in the process. Number two, I asked her why she is fighting so passionately and continuously against discrimination against blacks and women. And lots of people are, not enough people are, but lots of people are, but she's been there and her answer was so interesting. She said, well, I'm fighting evil. And maybe this is the religious side as well. I'm fighting evil. And her personal story that got her to say such a thing, got her to think about the world that way, is a big insight, is a big lesson, I think, that comes from this episode. And then number three, we really did get into religion. And I asked her a hard question. Maybe it wasn't hard for her, but it's a question all of us in some ways, or almost all of us in some ways ask. And I asked her, you know, why in a world of pain, killing, war, genocide, slavery, how could she believe in God? How could there be a God when there are all these horrible things that just keep happening time and time again? And her answer was, well, we have a choice. Each one of us has a choice to believe in what we want to believe in. We have agency. And Leah Dowtry says, it is God that has given us that agency, that has given us that gift to decide what we want to believe in and how we want to live. And she points out that, you know, we have to live with the consequences of whatever we choose. And that's right. I mean, that's right. She said, you know, if you're expecting God to come and solve all your problems that you've created or that we as a people have created, then you're wrong. It was a dramatic and compelling answer to one of the most fundamental questions that all people or many people ask at some point in their lives. And I just found it really interesting to listen to Leah talk about that and to engage with her on those ideas. So... In this episode of the SIDCast, there's a deep dive into religion and politics, breaking all the rules of polite conversation, but who better than someone with the type of background, deep learning and expertise as Bishop Leah Dowtry to lead us on that conversation. Let's go to the episode. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here today with Leah Dowtry. Hi, Leah. Hi, Sid. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm great. Now, I should really say Reverend Leah Daughtry, to be precise. You've worn and wear many hats in your career and your life. And it's one of the reasons why when a mutual friend told me a little bit about you, I said, wow, it would be great to bring you into the SIDCast and chat. And so here we are. Now, you said you're in Washington now. You're in D.C. I'm up here in Hanover, Mm. New Hampshire, where it's nice weather finally. The snow has melted. And actually, we feel like it's summer here. Quick note for listeners, and maybe to you as well, Leah, my puppy, COVID puppy, yes, might make a cameo appearance with some background barking, but that's just part of the authenticity of the SIDCast, live from my home. (laughs) So let's start with kind of your upbringing, where you grew up, and what your parents were about, and just to give people a little bit of flavor of kind of early background. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York although we moved to New Jersey for my high school years. So I graduated from Teaneck High School, but I, I'm a Brooklyn girl. 
What did your parents do or your family in general? My parents are in ministry. At the time that I was growing up, my father was the pastor of our church and the prelate, presiding prelate of our denomination. Mm-hmm. And my mom was not ordained at that time. She was running our church's network of child care centers. Now, today, she is ordained and she's a pastor and my father is still pastoring. So is it a family business? Sort of. I'm the fifth generation. Fifth generation. Wow. Fifth generation. My sister and I are fifth generation pastors. And I should also say that my parents are and were community activists. I sort of tie it to the church because it was, Mm. as far as we were concerned, the community activism was an outgrowth of our faith and our theological understanding of what our roles as Christians ought to be. So I tie them together, but for most people, they are separate things. And so they were very active in social justice movements as we were growing up. It's just part and parcel of our belief system. Yeah, so that's interesting. When you grow up in a family that is active in the community, that are leaders in the religious community as well, did it feel almost natural that this is the path you would end up taking? Yeah, I think, you know, our family mantra is love God, love the people, serve God, serve the people. So, you know, we all, all of us have chosen careers, my sisters and my brother and I, that have some kind of tie to community. I didn't personally expect to be in the ordained ministry, although the work that I did in politics, I consider that to be ministry. So the ordination was a surprise, but everything else, I think, was probably just in our DNA. Yeah, it's very interesting to think about. I mean, I've been doing these chats with people for three years now and mm-hmm. all kinds of walks of life, some in politics, but mostly academia, musicians, artists, writers, journalists, business people. And I always like to find out a little bit about the background. It's not always that you fall. Sometimes it's completely different. But almost always you see the little nugget. Like there's a professor, I'm so bad with names, I'm going to have to add it later. But she ended up going into banking, investment banking. But her love was art. It was always art. And she ended up becoming a graphic artist and actually ended up working on some of the mega movies using animation. She worked for Disney and other places. And when she was three or four, her mom gave her a sketchbook because I guess mom noticed this is something she had in her. And you know, it was supported. It was recognized. And that's one of the wonderful things that parents can do. Not everyone's going to become well-known for whatever that is, but it's part of who we are. It sounds like that happened very naturally in your case. Yeah, I think so. Again, we grew up in an environment, in a church, in a community where serving the community and being attached to the community was just something that we all did. As we grew up, my brother probably is the best example. He was determined that he was going to be a corporate attorney. He has a law degree from Georgetown. And, you know, he tried that for maybe six months or so. And then he quickly moved over and became a public defender. And then he became an educator. And so now he's a assistant superintendent in Newark Public Schools. So, you know, some of us have tried to stray from that path of public service, but we wind right back up in it. So. <laughs> it reels you back in because, yeah. It, yeah, it's in your DNA. So you went to Dartmouth in a different era. I think you graduated in the early or mid 80s. 84. So, 84. So we would have started in 80. Fall of 80, just before Reagan got elected. Wow. And Dartmouth was known then, I don't know about now, maybe, but not that much, but certainly known for being the most conservative of the yeah. Ivy Leagues. I and mean, was that the era with what is it called? The Dartmouth Review? Dartmouth Review started then, yeah, after Reagan's very, election, yeah. 
Oh, and it started, which was very controversial for a long time. And were there very many African-American students? In my class, we were about just under 10% of my class. So there were Mm -hmm. about 90 or so of us in my class. By the time my sister came, my sister's in 87, they were about 10% of the class. But I think the 86s were like the low point. I think there were only 40 black kids in the class of 86. That was a low number for that swath of time that I was on campus. Yeah. And I imagine there were very few black professors because even today there's not. I mean, there are, but not nearly as many as you would think. I could probably name them all. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, I run into some of them now who've left the college and who teach other places. And I see them on the circuit. Diane Penderhughes and Evelyn Higginbotham, who were in the government department. And yeah, and now they teach other places. But I run into them from time to time. So it's always odd to see them in the audience. (laughs) It's actually kind of special in a way, I think. I've had that myself a former professor in the audience when I was speaking. And it's actually a great feeling. (laughs) I'll tell you the truth. It's a great feeling. I love seeing them because it reminds me of that time, but also they are so smart and well-known in the academy and particularly in the circles of Black women scholars that when I see them or when Professor Pinderhughes, I can't stop calling her Professor (laughs) Pinderhughes no matter how many times she tells me not to, I see her pop up on my Facebook feed with a comment. It's like, (gasps) I immediately revert to, you know, the 19-year-old kid in her government class. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Isn't that funny? People are funny, aren't they? (laughs) It's true. It just, it sticks with you. So what was Dartmouth like for you personally in those days? So there were other people that were black, not a huge number, but not a tiny number if it was 10%. I think we've done a lot better since that time, but it was a relatively conservative campus as well, as you mentioned. I loved Dartmouth, and I still do. I did not go there. I knew what I was going to. I knew that there wouldn't be very many Black people. There wouldn't be people that I knew. I knew that, so I wasn't expecting anything different. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we've always been schooled or gotten our schooling in majority white schools, majority white districts. So I know what that looks like, and I know that there's always racism, there's sexism, I was fully aware of that. So I wasn't walking into something where I was expecting it to be different. I knew that there would be challenges with people. You know, after Ronald Reagan's election and the rise of the review, that was a little crazy because they were very, very confrontational with their views. And, you know, listen, I'm one of these, you want to be conservative? Because everybody's got a right to do what they want to do and think what they want to think and hold whatever political positions they can hold. But at the point that it becomes confrontational and personal, then that's problematic. So some of their practices, and for your listeners, this is the time of Dinesh D'Souza, and Laura Ingraham. These were the folks I was on campus with. (laughs) When they became personal, when they were going to, for example, the meeting of the gay students, I can't remember what it was called. And those were confidential meetings because it was a very different time then for Mm -hmm. the LGBT community. And the review folks would publish the names of the students that were there. They'd go and they'd write down names and publish them, which was just, that's personal. They were harassing. They were really challenging to the Black students because many of them didn't believe that we were there on merit and that we were some sort of affirmative action case or whatever. That was what was problematic. I didn't so much in the beginning have a problem with them publishing their newspaper 
freedom of speech, publish all you want, but why does it have to be personal? Why does it have to be attacking in that way of other people's agencies and the essence of who they are? Can you not make your point without attacking people by name, people by race? If your entire political and social construct and political leanings are dependent on you attacking other people as part of the basis for your reasoning and rationale, then that's problematic. You know, the review was probably, and the people who were involved with the review were probably the most concerning during my period at Dartmouth. But, you know, yeah, I had my personal experiences with students who were racist and students who would come up and say crazy things on campus. And you had to make a decision. Either I'm going to let this affect me and my education and my sense of who I am, or I'm going to keep moving. And I chose to keep moving. There were other students who didn't make that decision. And it was a very excruciating time for them. And I understand that. That just was not, you know, I just decided this fellow's not going <laughs> to. He can ask me as many times as he wants to, to do his laundry. I'm not going anywhere. He can come to my doorstep and demand to know how I got into Dartmouth. And did I know where the financial aid office is? And what was my GPA in high school? The nutty things. I was like, I don't know. What was yours? <laughs> what was your SAT score? You asking me, let me ask you. And I kept it moving. Other people, that was really a dagger for them. Mm. And so it made their time at Dartmouth very difficult. Yes, it was another era. But of course, modern era, I don't know if it's different. It's different. But is it discouraging? I mean, here's how I'm going to ask the question. So I'm not black. I'm white. I'm Jewish. So I'm a minority. But nobody knows unless I tell you that. You walk down the street, everybody knows. So it's a very big difference. Then we had President Obama, the first black president. And then we had after Obama. And the rise, or maybe the evidence of racism has never been greater. I don't know about never, but it certainly is a peak. And I think if I was a member of the black community, I'd say, my God, how long does this have to go on? Look what we've done. Obama came and went. Whatever you thought about Obama, he was the president. That's not nothing. And now for the last four or five years, it's been going backwards. I mean, now we have a different president, but it's still, some of those things haven't stopped. So I don't even know what the question is, but for me, I would have trouble turning the other cheek. I guess that's what I'm saying. It's discouraging and distressing, but it's not defeating. Now, my great, 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 great grandmother was born in 1789 in Georgia. Wow. We've been here a long time. She was born the couple of years after the Continental Congress had a meeting in her hometown of what would become Savannah, Georgia. It didn't have a name back then. It was just... Mm -hmm. Part of Georgia. So, you know, I come from a long line of people who survived and endured. And I'm the first generation. Well, my brother actually is the first generation in our family born with the right to vote. I wasn't born with the right to vote. Really? I was born in 1963. We didn't have the right to vote. That was before LBJ. My brother, who was born in 1969, is the first generation of our family born with mm -hmm. the right to vote. So, you know, for me, as a black person, we've been dealing with racism and as a woman, sexism for a very long time. But what I think about it is that I'm fighting for it because it's right. And I realize that I'm fighting against evil. I'm fighting against the words of religious, you know, demonic forces. So this is not a battle of who's got the better argument or which side is more right. <laughs> This is a battle of right versus wrong. And in the end, my theological statement is, you know, right wins. And so, you know, I'm going to keep fighting because eventually 
I'm going to defeat you. And I imagine what my four times great grandmother would have done if she decided she was just not going to live anymore. or She was not going to fight or she was not going to continue. And on down the line, what happens if we stop? What happens if we say they win? Racism win. I don't want to. I'm angry. I'm tired. I give up. Then what happens? And I think that's an impossible scenario for me to imagine. So you fight, you learn new ways to fight. You constantly stretching. Is it exhausting? It's exhausting. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Yes, it is. But does that mean I stop? No, mm-hmm. can't stop. Yeah. Why do you think, especially, I guess, during 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement, finally, I'm going to say, broke through to the wider community? I'm not going to say everyone, but a lot more people are talking about it. A lot more people are aware. And conversations about systemic racism, which never happened in most of the country, are happening in a lot of places, including at Dartmouth, including among students and faculty, and many, many, many other places. And CEOs are speaking out. What was the tipping point? You know, I think it was the convergence of, I'll say, three things that happened at once. One, you had a president of the United States who was appealing. He didn't create it, but he appealed to, fostered, energized the racist and the sexist. He didn't start it. (laughs) He didn't start the fire, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but he gave it sucker. He gave it life. He gave it approval tacitly and implicitly on the heels of Obama, which gave people permission to do and say things that six years earlier would have been politically incorrect and you just wouldn't have talked about it. So there was that. There was George Floyd. We all know what happened to George Floyd. Videotape for the world to see. But he wasn't the first one killed by a police officer who impacted his breathing. Eric Garner had died a few years before. Same, almost identical circumstances. I can give you, you know, a list of other names, but I think when the history is written, the thing that was the tipping point for all of it was COVID. The pandemic did a couple of things. One, it exposed in clear, broad daylight the inequities that existed in our nation between people who could afford to stay home, could afford to take care of their children, who had internet, who had choices about how to live out a pandemic. And the part of the nation that didn't, that had to go to work to serve the other part, whether that's bus drivers, whether that's hospital workers, whether that's grocery store clerks, they didn't have a choice of staying home. So that's one. But it also exposed the disparities in our healthcare system. It is an incontrovertible fact that black and brown people were dying at higher rates. And there was no explanation for it except the factors of race. And now we know that black women died at three times the rate of white men during the COVID crisis. And those of us who were able, we were captive to our televisions, captives to our social media devices. And so the things like George Floyd dying were a loop, a repeat Mm -hmm. for black, white, brown, Asian, native, everybody was stuck at home if you had that luxury and just watching it over and over. And when you watch it, you become outraged because how could a human being kneel on another human being's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds and not think to give none of us, those of us who are reasonable were outraged because what could he have possibly done to warrant nine minutes and 29 seconds on his neck? And I think 
because we were stuck inside, the pandemic made us focus. And so we couldn't escape from all of these things that were surfacing. We couldn't escape from COVID. We couldn't escape from the inequities. We couldn't escape from George Floyd. We couldn't escape from Donald Trump. It was in our face in a way that made us say, okay, I got to do something. And for towns across America, the little white towns, they were all out with signs doing what they thought they could do in that moment to express their outrage, their frustration with what was happening inside black and brown communities when it comes to race and police abuse of power, et cetera, et cetera. I honestly think if we had not been in a pandemic, it would not have happened. Which is a once in a 100 year event. Because again, Eric Garner, it was killed in New York City. Yeah, I remember, the same I was, way. I remember hearing and seeing TV about that. And it did not spark this. And yeah. I think we had the luxury of going on with our lives, going to work and sing about our childcare and right. going to our basketball games. And, <laughs> and suddenly with COVID, we're just stuck watching George Floyd and Derek Chauvin on a loop and saying to ourselves, is this what I want our country to be? Is this who we are? And of course, ask any black person, we say, yes, this is who we are, because this has been happening for centuries in America. But I think the rest of America caught up and decided that, you know, no, this is not what I want my country to be. Do you think that we passed the point where we won't? I mean, are you afraid that we could go back to not paying the attention anymore where it becomes, it's a movement, people know about it, but next year something else happens. And especially as you think about getting out of COVID, people are desperate to go back to a normal life and yeah. have a good time. I worry about that because I think, you know, look, I'm double vaccinated. I can't wait to mm. get out of the house. I want to see my mom and dad, who I haven't seen in months. Mm. I haven't seen my sister and my brother in a year. I think we're all ready to go out. And some of the selfishness, that's what I call it, or self-centeredness that we see from our sister and brother Americans as they rush to take their masks off as some of them never put masks on, mm -hmm. <laughs> as we have governors lifting restrictions in states where the infection rate is climbing. It's like we have people fighting to get in bars and they don't want to mask. It's like, what kind of crazy is this? <laughs> Not protect me from you because you don't protect yourself. You don't know what I have. <laughs> what crazy is this? So, you know, I worry about the self-centeredness that we've shown that some of our family in America has shown over these past few months. And I worry that when we get back to the press of business, of regular business, that it will go back and people won't pay as much attention. And people won't be concerned with there's the part of me that holds hope that what we've learned over this year, what we've learned over these weeks, these months, as we saw what happened with our healthcare workers without enough equipment and watching death daily and all of the, we lost grandparents and we couldn't say goodbye. I hope, the part of me that holds hope says, I hope that we will remember. And maybe it won't be, maybe we won't be all be out with signs, but we'll be more conscious of the things that we say and the tests and the trials that our neighbors may endure because they had to go to work every day. They had to bag our groceries and, or listen, they had to deliver our food. And that was how they made their money so they could keep their families intact. I think we see them more and I hope we remember. I want to talk a little bit about politics and religion, which might be your specialty, among other things. <laughs> <laughs> so I am from Canada originally. And when I went to school, actually in Montreal, so Quebec is a little different than some of the other provinces. But when I went to school, there was a Protestant school board and a Catholic school board. And the Jewish kids went to the Protestant school board. 
But you weren't taught any religion other than, well, we did have to say the Lord's Prayer in the morning. Everyone did. That and sing God Save the Queen because Canada, I mean, it's an independent country, obviously, but it's part of the Commonwealth, which is really kind of crazy. I refuse to say both of them, just so you know. But that's maybe why I became a professor where you don't have any bosses. <laughs> that or entrepreneur. In any event, so religion was there, but it wasn't religious at all. And you didn't see politicians talking about how they went to church. You didn't see that. But in America, you see it. You see it all over the place. Even Donald Trump posed in front of a church. I think he had his Bible upside down. But regardless, he posed in front of a church. And certainly President Obama with everyone. I don't know how long this has been going on. You might know. Maybe it wasn't the case decades and decades ago. But it certainly is maybe since Reagan, for sure, maybe earlier. But this is a country where the Constitution separates church and state. So I'm stuck with this kind of weird irony where growing up in a country where we don't have that constitutional protection... We have names that people in America would say, that's not right. But there was no real religion in there. We, you could do anything you want. To come here where on paper it sounds like everything is separate, but in reality, it's not at all separate. What do you think about all that? You know, our Constitution, when it talks about the separation of church and state, is talking about institutionally. So that, you know, like the queen is the head of the church in England, that doesn't happen here. The president is not head of any church or whatever. But you cannot legislate separating people from their beliefs and from their values. And so a couple of ways I think about this. One is what I just said, you can't separate people from their beliefs and their mm -hmm. values. And in a country where certain segments of the population want to understand what your beliefs are, not because they want you to be what they are. Well, you know, with some exception, at least for in black church world, it's like, what's driving you? What are the values that are driving? You don't have to be Christian or Jewish or Muslim or anything for that matter. It's more about understanding what or is there a set of values that's driving you as you're asking me, a voter, to make a choice between all of these people running for office. So I think that's one part of it. But the second part of it is any astute politician, the basis of you winning office is that you got to reach the voters. And so you go to where voters are. And so I often say, use the example that I got a set of voters. They got a certain set of things that they care about issues that they care about, mm -hmm. that they advocate for, and they meet on a certain day of the week in a certain place. I need you to go to talk to them because they vote. They're called teachers. They're called firefighters. And you go into the firehouse. You're called the building trades. You're going to the place where they meet to discuss the things that they want to talk about. Any swath of voter, you need to be an astute candidate and go see them where they are and talk to them about the things that concern them in the place where they meet. We don't have a problem with that when we're talking about unions or teachers or healthcare workers or block associations. We only raise a question when we're talking about mosque, synagogue, or church. Then we want to say it's different. It's not different. We are voters. We have a certain set of issues that we care about. We meet on a certain day in a certain place, and we'd like you to come talk to us about the things that concern us. And so I always question, why do we raise the flag when we say this politician has come to talk with people at a church or at a mosque or at a mosque? We didn't ask the question when he went to the fire station to meet with firefighters. 
We didn't ask the question when we went to meet at the hospital with home care workers. So, you know, people of faith are voters as well. And as long as we're not asking them to, you know, get baptized and <laughs> sign the church roll, if you want to see some voters that you might not see any other place, you just ought to show up and say something to these people who live and pay taxes and engage in this American experiment like other folks do. You know, I completely get that. I just feel like there's something more. And I don't think it's particularly genuine for many people, which is not saying anything original. Well, you know, there are politicians who come and I always want to tell them, don't fake it. If you don't know the hymn, don't try to sing the hymn. If you don't know how to clap on the beat and rock back, don't try it. If you're not a preacher, don't try to preach. Don't try to use our lingo. We know when it's fake. We know when you are being inauthentic and that doesn't really work for you. Get up and talk about what you're going to do, what you hope to do. And why you're here to ask for our vote, because you're here to ask for our votes. And then sit down <laughs> or go where you're going. All right. Don't do the trying to act like you a Christian and you haven't been in church in the last 10 years and you decide to run for office and so now you show up. We know that's inauthentic mm-hmm. or not much interested, but it tells us who you are. It tells us what your values are when you're trying to fake it. At least in the black community, we need to know who your mama was, what your daddy did, where'd you go to school, who your people are, and, you know, what you think about some things that have nothing to do with politics. Do you call your mama? Have you seen your grandma lately? You know, what your kids do? Do you play ball with them? Those sorts of things inform how we think about a candidate and how we think about the person of who they are and what they are bringing to their office. And if what they're telling us is matching up with what we see them doing, are your words and deeds aligning? And if they're not, eh, next. You know, the religious pluralism in this country is pretty impressive. There's so many different flavors, but some of these flavors come with such different political views. And as an example, I was just reading, not that long ago in any event, I think it was in the New York Times, an article about the evangelical community and how there are many people in that community that are choosing not to be vaccinated. But they believe in God. And then you have your community, for example, which I think might have exactly the opposite point of view. And you believe in God and are close to God. I don't know how y'all make sense of this type of thing. (laughs) You know, on the Christian side, I can't speak for the others. And I think, well, actually, you know, in Judaism, you have the same... You got one book and people interpret it different ways. So in Judaism, you got reform, conservatives, you've got your different strands and strains who look at the same, read the same thing and come away with different ways of living that. It's the same in Christianity. Listen, we got one book. God bless him. I don't do the Pope. That's not my understanding that there's a Pope and an infallible person. And if you want to believe that, God bless you. I got nothing to say about your own belief system. I think we come away with different understandings. Now, I'm about as confused as everybody about some of these. I don't understand how we read the same text, for example, the evangelicals, and come away with I'm not being vaccinated or that vaccine is somehow sinful or that, you know, women shouldn't preach or whatever else or that Donald Trump was, you know, the closest thing to God. How did you get there? I can't understand. And you're not giving me any kind of proof text. So this is just, I think, opinion. And it's nuts. (laughs) It's nuts. I'll say it. It's nuts. It's totally, completely nuts. And, you know, I was on a panel some months ago with the guy who led President Bush's 43, George W., his faith outreach. 
And we were talking about the evangelicals. I'm Pentecostal, which some people would put us in the evangelical genre. We would not. Black Pentecostals wouldn't say that because we do not align on many things with the white evangelicals. But okay. And we were talking. He was telling me why they believe what they believe. And, you know, they feel like society has left them behind. They feel like their belief system is not accepted. They believe that, you know, the government. And I said, we would tell you that, too. We would say the same things. I said, so the only thing that really accounts for the difference in our belief system and in the divergent paths we take is race. That's the only thing that accounts for it because everything you said, we would agree with as Pentecostals. Everything you said, except that our theology leads us to a social justice structure which says that all God's people are created equal and should be treated equally. And so we place a high bar on getting to that and bringing our nation to that same understanding. And their belief system takes them to a place that says, let's suppress voting rights. Let's, you know, we don't feel a need to use governmental apparatus Mm -hmm. to bring equality. So the only thing that's different, the dividing line here, quite frankly, is race. So the community that, I don't want to say it's all evangelicals, but let's say the community that is looking to limit voting rights that feels this resentment. So they feel that they've lost something. They also feel like they had it. They were in first place. They had the power and they feel like they're losing it. Now, relative to a lot of other groups, there's still a lot of power there, but they feel like they're losing it. And in psychology, there's a theory called loss aversion. Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for coming up with it. It's a pretty good one. And loss aversion means that people hate losses more than they love equal gains that the losses hurt them more than the joy they get out of winning the same, if you can quantify it. I haven't heard anyone write about it or talk about it that way, so maybe I'm off a little bit, but it does occur to me that if you feel like you've lost something, for psychological reasons, it's so painful that it might have something to do with the reaction of lashing out and trying to take away from other people as opposed to building everybody up. And that's definitely a big difference. I think that's right, and I think what Trump gave to them was someone to blame. And so I think that's why you see so much angst among that religious community, but also among the folks of the type that showed up on January 6th in Washington. He gave them a way to explain their losses in the way that your losses are due to the immigrants coming over the border. Your losses are due to Obama and, you know, this foreigner who came and became president of our country. Your losses are due to all these other things that are caused by people who are not like us. And it's stoked that instead of saying, okay, the real problem is, you know, whatever we think the real problem is, the real problem is a changing economy. The United States hasn't kept up with a changing economy. We still have lots of people who can't connect to the internet. How can you compete? Instead of saying that, then we're blaming, we're othering people as a way to explain our losses and to assuage our hurt. And all that does is extend the problem or shift the borders of our problem so that we don't have to look at ourselves and government or the autocratic way in which we make decisions around our economic structure. And instead, we can blame you, 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 you. And we see that playing out now with the Asian violence, the anti-Asian violence, because why is there coronavirus in America? Not because we didn't take it seriously and we didn't close the borders and we didn't. It's because the Chinese. And so you got grandmothers being beaten on the street because rather than accept responsibility for what we did not do, we're going to blame a whole other country 
and some people who have been here since the year of the flood and make it their fault and calling it the whatever he was calling it, the Chinese virus, the Wuhan virus. That's nuts. You know what you're describing of identifying scapegoat populations, groups, and blaming them and blaming all the things that are going wrong in your own life or your own community's life on them is got a long history. Very, very, very long history. And it's human beings that are doing this. Not one or two, but millions and tens of millions, actually, and over history, bigger numbers than that. And I guess the question is how you think of God and right and wrong when there are so many people that do these things and have been doing these things that cause this damage, this harm, this murder in many cases, for as long as there have been humans on earth. I mean, what do you say to the skeptic that says, I would love to believe what you believed in. I would love to, but it's just not true. And here's the evidence. And I wish I was wrong, but you know I'm not wrong. Well, you know, I would say that that position assumes that God gives us no agency. And it assumes that God is a puppet master that is directing each and every one of our steps. And it absolves us of our individual responsibility for the decisions that we make and the attitudes we have. And I don't believe, I don't believe that's who God is. I believe that God gives us agency. He gives us choice. She gives us choice. I want gender unimportant here. And we make decisions. And God allows us to live with the consequences of our decision. And much of my understanding, my theological framework for God is God loves us enough to let us choose. And part of that choice is whether you choose God or not. There's no forced choice here. God wants you to choose God. God wants you to have a life of a believer, but there's no force. And if you don't want to, you don't have to. So if God doesn't force choice on you in what I believe to be the greatest decision, will you choose a life with God or not? Then God's certainly not going to force choice on you in terms of the vaccine or the virus or anything else. We have choice and we have agency. And that is the greatest thing about us as God's creation. God lets us make decisions, the decisions that we want to make, but we must live with the consequences of those decisions. And sometimes, you know, in my little life, the consequences are great or small. In other periods, depending on who's deciding, the consequences are war or not war, emancipation or not emancipation, moving from Ireland to New York, going to Ellis Island, or staying over there and surviving the potato famine. All of these things are choices that we make. And our interconnectedness as human beings, as God's creation, is such that my decision may impact you and has the potential to impact millions of people across the world. We're in a global warming situation right now, not because I didn't recycle my bags last week. It's because people two generations ago made a decision about coal power versus, you know, gas power versus something else. I'm living with that. My nephews, my nieces, my granny, they will live with those decisions that I didn't personally make, but were made and so they sort of filter down to us. So for the skeptic, you know, I say, listen, if you're expecting God to fix everything and to come and write all of the decisions that humanity have made, that's not who God is and it's not who God has ever claimed to be. God is an omnipotent, omnipresent being, creator of heaven and earth who loves us and who wants us to love them him, her, whatever, however you want to call it, and who gives us a hope, a faith, a presence that this existence that we have is not all that there is, that there is something that we strive for, that there is something that connects us 
And I think it's the God in each of us that recognizes herself, himself, that connects us to one another and that moves us to greater purpose and ideal of what life could be. Do you think that everyone believes in something, whether it's religion or God, or whichever version of God you wish to, or religion. Do you feel like everyone, even atheists, do they believe in something? Or is it kind of a human necessity that you have to believe in something more than yourself, bigger than yourself, different than yourself? Because otherwise, you got your 60, 80, 100 years, or whatever it is, if you're fortunate, I suppose, and you're coming, you're gone, and that's the end of it. And if you don't believe in anything else, then it's not hard to imagine a hedonistic life is a perfectly reasonable choice to make. You know, I think that even for those who don't believe, there is the divine in them. And so whether they know it or not, it is that hope that moves them forward and gets them out of bed and makes them, you know, work hard for their children Mm -hmm. because you believe that something else, something greater, Mm -hmm. something more, there's something to believe in. So I think our humanity, the way we are designed is that we hope, we believe. And so even those, you know, atheists who say they don't believe in God, there's something that they're hoping for. Otherwise, why are you getting out of bed every day? There's something that's driving them. There's a something you're striving for. And it could be a little small thing of your rose bushes. Right? <laughs> you love your rose bushes and you want to see if they bloom today. Or it could be something bigger and grander than that. But I think we're hardwired to hope. I think that's something that whether you believe in God or not, that's the part of God that lives in you. That's a really and it interesting, doesn't need to be acknowledged. It's a really interesting argument because it says God actually does have 100% market share, whether you're buying or not. Very interesting. You know, we've been talking for 50 minutes, and so we only have a bit more time. I have to ask you about politics, the Democratic National Convention that you've run. First of all, how did you get that gig, and what was that like? <laughs> You know, I was working for the first time because I've run to 2008 or Obama was nominated in 2016 where Clinton was nominated. I was working for Howard Dean. I was his chief of staff at the Democratic Party. And we were frantically looking for a convention CEO because it was time to appoint one. And so we were trying to find the right person. And who would that be? And so he came in my office one day. and He said, I found our CEO. I was like, thank God. Who is it? (laughs) And he looked Who at you. is it? Because, you know, <laughs> up until then, the site selection process had been part of my bailiwick and I was eager to push that off onto someone else. He said, it's you. And I was like, no, it's not. He said, yes, it is. Yes, it is. You'd be great. And I was like, I, I don't know. Huh? So, and we talked for a while. We talked for a few weeks. And, you know, I consulted my little kitchen cabinet and I decided to take the job. That's how I got the job the first time. So what is the job? What do you do? The job of the convention CEO is to knit together all of the pieces, the logistics, the, you know, the look and feel, the messaging all into one whole that the whole world watches for four days in the summer as we nominate our party's nominee for presidency. So that means for us, we normally need 16,000 hotel rooms. We need a fleet of buses. We have an arena. The set has to be built, design, lights, air conditioning, all of that. Then there is 
The other process is the platform. How does the platform get built? What will the rules of the convention be? What do the bylaws say? Who gets to come? The credentialing. And you know, it's the minutia of dealing with the city that you're in and things like the police escort to deliver the packet of credentials to each of the 57 delegations and put them in their safe. So that minor to what is the message of the convention? What is the candidate trying to convey? And how do we support that and make that become alive? I think Hillary Clinton had the most speakers ever. We had over, I think we had 150 to 200 speakers. They all have to have airline tickets, hotel rooms, Mm -hmm. (laughs) all of that and put that into a hole. It takes a year and some change to plan that. And then when we kick off on the first day, we have about 40,000 people that come to the convention city pre-pandemic. This is pre-pandemic. And then you've got millions who watch on television. Right. 40,000. But the arena doesn't hold 40,000. No, everybody's not in the hall. Generally, we call it the hall. The hall is where the proceedings take place. And Mm -hmm. that'll hold 16,000 or so. There are hundreds of thousands of media who come. And we build them a separate facility, which is attached, usually in the parking lot. And that's where they work. And they rotate in and out of the arena. And most people who do interviews with media, either you're going to the networks who are housed in the skyboxes, or you're actually leaving the building and going to where the media is. And you're doing a lot of interviews and coverage from there. So it's kind of like a political Olympics. Yes. And so you ran that entire thing. That's gigantic logistics. Challenge must have had a really big team. Our paid team is about 150. And then we use normally in a convention year, you use somewhere between 14 and 17,000 volunteers. Wow. You could have given me a multiple choice question. That I, would, <laughs> I wouldn't have had one or two of those arrows on that. Why so many volunteers? Well, you know, the volunteers do everything from, you know, the coveted prizes to work inside the hall. But, you know, every delegation, and there are 57, have breakfast every morning, they distribute Mm -hmm. credentials, they receive speakers, you have people with disabilities who need escorts, Mm -hmm. you're moving people around. Our media center has its own set of hundreds of volunteers who are doing the media arrangements for DNC media. And then the networks all use volunteers who are on site. So it adds up. I guess so. (laughs) I was watching, was it on Netflix, Chicago... What was that movie? Chicago 7? Uh-huh. Well, you know the story, but you may have seen the film as well. Security must be like a gigantic, especially, yeah. well, maybe always, but especially for Obama. You know, the security arrangements changed. I've worked on every convention since 1992. Security changed after 9-11 because of 9-11. And mm-hmm. so every convention since then, every Super Bowl also is designated as a national special security event. So it gets special funding, special attention from FBI, from security forces, et cetera. And so it's been that way since 9-11. There wasn't additional security in Denver for the convention. I think, as I recall, the nominee himself had extra security around his team. But, you know, post 9-11, the Secret Service and Homeland Security attention to the conventions is quite intense. And how do you manage the politicians' teams? Since 92, has it always been the case that we knew who was going to be? Or was there ever a contested, like in the old days that you see on? Yeah. 
No, it's been the first like contested late nominee was Obama because he didn't become the nominee until June. If you recall, Clinton was in and was winning contests until very late. So yeah. he became the nominee after California, which yeah. was June. It was very late. But Clinton became the nominee very late because of Sanders staying in. So we've had in a row now two late contests. Biden had it wrapped up in March. So it's the earliest nominee we've had in a couple of cycles. When I started in for 16, there were three people in the race, Clinton, Sanders, and Martin O'Malley. My job as the convention CEO is to be neutral. Our team takes a pledge that we will be neutral until a nominee is apparent. And so I met, I would meet regularly with all three teams. So they all knew, you know, how the budget was going, how the spending was going, what the set was going to look like, you know, what the platform process was going to be. And they had an opportunity at every juncture to weigh in to say, oh, I really don't like that or this is fine. Or, you know. And so I saw that as my role because you didn't know who the nominee was going to be. I worked for the party. And so my mm -hmm. job was to make sure that it was going to work for all three. And it was in our best interest to maintain good relationships with all three. So that's the way that we approached it. Do you think that post-COVID, there'll be any big differences? Like, so the next one's going to be 2024. Oh, yeah. I think what 2020 demonstrated is that you don't have to have, you could do the whole thing virtually, yeah. that it can be done. It was interesting. I watched. When you're working it, you don't even see the whole convention because mm -hmm. <laughs> you're running around and you're doing other things. But I watched it. The roll call was fantastic. So I think, you know, if I were predicting, I'd say there will be in-person conventions. They will be shorter. Because I think there's a certain amount of politics you got to do in person. There's a certain amount, which we've all learned over this year. There's nothing replaces the in-person look and feel of it. So I think we'll still have them. They'll be shorter, but they will be more engaging, like we saw with the roll call. I think after this roll call, we all wanted to go to Rhode Island for the calamari, right? <laughs> Anybody want a calamari? <laughs> so we learned things about the states, and it was great seeing regular Americans talk about their states with such pride. And so I think we'll see some of that. So you'll see some of sort of a hybrid, I think. Yeah. in years going forward. Yeah. The conference industry in general is, you know, everything's been remote, but the number of attendees at say, you know, I go to a couple of them that are for academics in my area and they're just huge number of attendees for obvious reasons. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to lose all those attendees and all that no. energy. And if you go back to what it was before, they're not all going to come. So That's right. yeah, some type of hybrid will happen. You're right. Okay. Let me ask you two last questions. One about another person and then one about you. The other person is Kamala Harris. Nobody could see, but you got a big smile on your face. <laughs> Tell me something about Kamala Harris that most people might not know. Oh, goodness. She is an excellent cook, an excellent listener. She's just a great person. Look, she's my sorority sister. We're both members of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. I met her at the 2008 convention. We've been friends ever since. I've been to her house. She makes a mean curry. And she's just a joyful person, faith-centered, very connected to her church and her pastor. And, you know, she's got a great family life and she's a great auntie, which I'm a great auntie too. So she's just, and you saw that at the inaugural. She's smart. She's family oriented. She's a great cook. She's a wonderful sister and she's doing a good job. I was just over there last week at the White House for a meeting of faith leaders with her. There were four of us in the room and four on Zoom. And we had a great discussion mm -hmm. about COVID and anti-Asian violence and a whole lot of things. She's very studied and always prepared. Are we going to see her kind of 
intellect at work somewhere, the way she carves up people that deserve to be carved up. Are we going to see any of that? Well, it's still early days, but she's kind of the supporting cast. Yeah, sure, uh, well, right that's what the vice president does. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, But we want to see her in yeah, action. You know, I think <laughs> the appetite to see her in action is higher than any other vice president we've ever had. God bless them. They did fabulous jobs, but did anybody really know, you know, have this appetite around Al Gore or Pence or any of the others, right? I think because of the historic nature of her vice presidency, people want to see her more and want to see her do exactly what you've done. It's early still, and I think, you know, they walked into this. Has it been 100 days? I think it's just 100 days, maybe. And they walked in with a pandemic-ravaged America, and you really had no choice about what you were going to do first. You had Mm -hmm. to figure out how people were going to get vaccinated, how we're going to get this thing out of the because everything else hinges on that. So I think, you know, rightly, all attention has been focused on that. And now we're starting to see other things creep up, like immigration, what's happening at the border and the economy and so forth. But, you know, I think it's very early in the first year of the presidency and vice presidency. So I think in due time, we'll see and hear more from her (laughs) as we get this COVID thing under control. Yes, exactly. Okay, so last question is an advice question for you, but it's I got a little twist to it. And the twist is that I'm wondering what advice you would have given yourself. If you could magically transport yourself back to, let's say, the 21-year-old, maybe you're still in the Dartmouth campus, maybe you're about to graduate, what have you, and you'd lean over to the 21-year-old Leah and say, if there's one thing you want to know, is there one thing you want to do or not do, if there's some bit of wisdom I've got that you wouldn't really know at this young age, this is what it is. What would you put into that category? What would you say? I think I would tell my younger self to be braver, to be bolder, to be more confident because you know more than you think you know. And I think that certainly would have been a lesson for me. I think that's a lesson for women in general because we yeah. tend to think we need more experience than we do. It, trust me, I have seen some people in the room and you just go, why are you here? (laughs) (laughs) How did you get here? But they got there with supreme confidence, a supreme belief in themselves that was not warranted, quite frankly. (laughs) Mm. But it's the opposite for many very talented women. I've seen it myself as an educator. And many people have researched that question as you probably So that's what I would tell them, be bolder, be braver, and be more confident because you know more than you think you know. That's great. Rev. Leah Dowtry, thank you so much for spending the time with me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've learned a lot as well. Thank Thank you. you Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCAST is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.